If you got your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians, and we are continuing our study. And uh, we are in chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 18 through 25. Uh, the title of our lesson this morning is The Foolishness of God. The Foolishness of God, which would uh, be a little presumptuous of, of somebody to say if Paul himself didn't say it. So it's in Scripture, so we can actually, uh, we can actually say that. Before we get started, I, this, I want to say this. This week's lesson and next week's lesson are really almost a part one and a part two. Um, in fact, I almost named it a part one and a part two. But, uh, and, I, and I bring that up because I know some of y'all may be, uh, I know uh, Ron's starting the Truth Project next Sunday, and some of you may be going to that. Uh, so I would encourage you, if you get the chance, if you're not here next Sunday, to, to make sure to, to um, listen to part two on the internet or catch the podcast and, uh, and get caught up. Because it's a, it's a really, if you, if you miss next week's, you, you kind of don't get the whole, whole gist of what Paul is saying. So uh, the foolishness of God. One more thing, we also, uh, uh, Chuck kind of mentioned last week, we've got people scattered around. So I kind of uh, uh, made the fonts a little bigger on my PowerPoints, because um, I've been for years in a room with a television set, and people could see, but now, you know, obviously it's a little... So if you have any trouble seeing anything, let me know, and I'll make them, uh, I'll make them even uh, a little bigger. All right, let's read 1 Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 25. This is Paul writing, and he says this, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. There Paul is quoting Isaiah 29 and 14. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For the Jews request a sign, and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews. That's a stumbling block. And to the Greek, it sounds like foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men." Now, I shouldn't really have to point this out, but in today's message, there's one word that occurs, or today's passage, there's one word that occurs five different times in different forms, and it's really, uh, it's hard to miss it, um, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to highlight that word so you can see it very clearly. In verse 18, Paul says the message of the cross is what? It's foolishness. In verse 20, Paul says, has, God, has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world. In verse 21, he says, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Verse 23, we preach Christ crucified. It's a stumbling block to Jews, foolishness to Gentiles. Verse 25, for the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom. So that word that Paul keeps bringing up over and over and over is foolish or, or, or foolishness. Now, it might help you to know that the Greek word that Paul uses there is Moriah or Moros. And if that sounds familiar, it's where we get the English word moron. It's the same word. What Paul is literally saying there is the, the message of the cross 
is moronic to the Gentiles. It sounds like it comes from a moron. It's something a moron would say. That's how strong a word that is. It, it, and by the way, it means exactly in the Greek what it meant in the English. It's the idea of something that is it's ridiculous. It's stupid. It's, it's ludicrous. It's not even worth hearing. That, I mean, it's an incredibly strong uh, word for him to use. Now, the point of today's lesson is to remind ourselves here in this body and in this, in the, here today in this, in this class of something that we really forget. Uh, William Willimon, who's the uh, dean of the chapel at Duke University, said this, One of the dangers of being in church as often as I am is all this stuff starts really to make sense. And he's right. He's right. You see, um, why, for, for me, when I think about God sending His Son to die on a cross, that's the most logical thing I've ever heard. It makes perfect sense. Because, see, I understand it's the only way that God could uphold His love and His justice at the same time. You see, if God just overlooked sin, He'd love us, but His justice, He'd have to just push it aside and sweep all of our sins under the rug. But if he, if he gave us justice, we'd all be in hell. His, the cross says, I'm going to uphold my love and my justice, and I'm going to bring them together. And, and I look at that and say, that's perfect. It's the perfect plan. It makes perfect sense. But I didn't always think that way, and neither did you. You see, the fact is, we if you're a Christian and you have the Holy Spirit who has opened your eyes, and then, by the way, you sit under teaching and preaching for months and years all this stuff starts to really make sense, does it not? It's not foolishness to us at all. And so when we read a passage like this, and Paul says it's foolishness to those Greeks out there, or those Gentiles, or people that are trying to use their mind, we think, you know, that it's hard for us to understand. In fact, I don't know about y'all, but there's a lot of times I think, this stuff makes so much sense, why don't they get it? Why can't they see it? It's, it's plain as the nose on your face. So, but we have to remember that it's not like that to people who don't believe the gospel. What happens to us is eventually, see, we forget how radical, and by the way, when I say radical, I mean weird, how odd the gospel is. We forget that because we know God. Now, we know who He is. We know what He's done for us. But we forget how really weird and odd this message really is. I'll give you an example. And, and, and by the way, that's, whole, that's what Paul wants us to see in the pa- this passage. The gospel is not of this world. It's not something the world would come up with. The world comes up with... Re- every religion the world comes up with is all about works. You work your way to God. You be good. That, it, see, this, this gospel, this message of grace and mercy that says you can't do anything to get there, this message is weird to the world. It makes no sense because they don't come up with it. It's not something the, the human mind would come up with. It. So it's, it's not of this world. It's contrary to the wisdom of the world. And it makes no sense to someone of the world. Now, I want to show you a passage here. and just uh, Paul's going to drive this home in verse 21. This is really an amazing verse here. And it's something I think we just read and go right by it. And I want you to watch what he says. Paul says this, For since... In the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God. Okay, now let me explain to you what he means. Because that statement is very powerful and it's fundamental to understanding the gospel of grace. You know, human beings, do you know we're really smart? I mean, in fact, when you really step back and think about it, human beings and our brains 
are, are flat out brilliant. I remember years ago, I was in the yard one day and, and my youngest son played baseball and I'd, I'd hit him fly balls and, and he would catch them. And he's probably, you know, seven or eight years old. And I'm sitting there thinking one day, we do something like that and it doesn't even cross our mind how unbelievable that is. Do you understand that I stand here and I hit a fly ball and it goes up in the air and in his mind, at seven or eight years old, his brain looks at that ball, it calculates the speed, it calculates the trajectory, and his brain figures out, I need to go to this spot right here to catch that ball. You know how amazing that is? You know, you can't build a computer that can do it that fast and that quickly and that easily and here's a seven-year-old kid catching fly balls and we just don't even think anything about it. We just think, oh, that's just, that's just the way it is. I mean, we, our brain is incredibly complex, incredibly uh, intelligent. There are those among us, not me, but there are those among us who have been mastered incredibly difficult subject matter. And because of that, today in this world, we can do unbelievable things. We can dream, we can design, we can engineer, we can create, we can produce. We are, we're literally a generation in this world today of technological geniuses. I mean, just think about some of the things we've done. We've, we've split an atom. We can go down into the farthest recesses of a human body and find a cancer cell and, and treat that cancer cell. We can operate on babies inside the womb. Who would have ever thought that's possible? We've sent probes to the edge of the universe and seen things that only God and His angels had ever seen before. We've done that. That's, a, I mean, it's incredible what we can do. I was, I was talking to someone the other day about Google. You know, literally in your kitchen, on your computer, you've got all the world's knowledge at your fingertips. Every library in the world is sitting there at your fingertips. You can, you can look up anything you want to look up. It, it's right there. We've done that. Human beings have done that here. But here's what I want you to see. And by the way, these things have become so commonplace that we don't even think about them anymore, do we? You'll read something that they're doing, you're just thinking, you might say, wow, but you're just, you just expect, man, we're just, we're doing in, in, incredible things. What I want you to see this morning is the intelligence and wisdom of human beings is an incredibly wonderful thing. And there's really, you would think, there's really, the, the sky's the limit. There's really nothing that we can't do. However, there is one thing that we cannot do and we'll never be able to do. And that is, we will never come to know God through our own wisdom and our own intelligence. Look at that scripture again. For since in the wisdom of God, in other words, God designed it this way, God ordained it, that the world through wisdom would never come to know Him. Does everybody see what that scripture means? God has ordained it. He has orchestrated that no matter how smart we are, no matter how wise we are, no matter how intelligent we are, through the power of our brain, we will never come to know God. A human being will never come to know God that way. By the way, they may create our own gods. We may create a God and call Him Zeus. We may create a God and call Him Allah. By the way, we may even create a God and call Him Jesus. But He's not God. He's not the one true God. It's a God that we've invented. Is everybody with me? That's what human beings can do. Through our own power, we can invent gods. But Paul says you'll never, under your own intelligence, under your own power, under your own wisdom, you can never come to know the one true God. And by the way, 
God has designed it and ordained that to be, um, to be so. You see, God has a different plan. And this plan will be so different, so weird, so odd, that when human beings hear it, they will immediately dismiss it and say, that sounds like something a moron would come up with. I was trying to think of an example, and this is the best I could come up with. What if I said, we got a, the world came up with a contest to go to Mars. We need, we need to design a way to go to Mars. And what would everybody begin to design? Spaceships, rockets, they look at different types of propulsion fuels. So everybody would be over here designing spaceships because everybody knows that's the only way to get to Mars. And what if one guy showed up and said, I'm going to go in a hot air balloon. What would you say to that guy? You're a moron. Right? That's exactly. They, you say, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. That's not how you get to Mars. You gotta have jet propulsion fuel. You gotta have rockets. You gotta have spaceships. You can't get there in a hot air balloon. That's, that's something a moron would say. You're an idiot. You're stupid. Folks, that's exactly how human beings naturally view the plan of God of salvation. In their own minds, they say, a, a man dying on a cross, are you stupid? Everybody knows that you gotta, you gotta worship these great gods and you gotta sacrifice to them and you gotta do good. And you hope at the end of the day that you're accepted. This is how you do it. This is stupid. That's the dumbest plan I, I've ever heard. I want you to think about, just think about the Greeks in Paul's day for one second. Their idea of a god was Zeus, Apollo, Aphrodite, Venus, Poseidon. That was their idea of gods. God, these were beings that were, were, were incredibly powerful. By the way, they were immortal. That they could never die. If you, um, an idea of this, if you were to go to uh, Olympia, Greece in that day, they had been, built a temple there called the Temple of Zeus. And it was one of the seven wonders of the natural world at that time. It was built around 435 B.C. And inside this temple was a statue of Zeus. And I tried to grab a picture of it. But just imagine walking into this, this incredible building. And at the end is a statue 43 feet tall of Zeus. By the way, if you've been, how many of y'all been to the Lincoln Memorial? That's, Lincoln Memorial is 20 foot tall. This, this is twice as tall as, as Lincoln sitting there in his chair. It's this huge statue. You see, that was their idea of a god. That's what a god looked like. By the way, that statue stood for a thousand years. It was there in Paul's day. It was there in Jesus' day. When Paul went to, to, to Corinth, when Paul went to Athens, that statue was there. It stood for a thousand years. That was their idea of a God. A God who dies on a cross? A, a, a God who is tortured and killed by human beings and can do nothing to stop it? Are you, are you serious? Is this, is this a joke? That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. See, they, that, 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 had no, that, that was nowhere near their idea of what a, what a God would or could do. To them, it was moronic. That's what Paul said. It's, it's, it sounds to them like something a moron would, would come up with. The Alexamenos graffiti is a piece of Roman... How many of y'all ever heard of the Alexamenos graffiti? The Alexamenos graffiti is a piece of graffiti scratched on a wall in Rome, and it was hid for literally centuries. And I think in 1857, they were tearing down a building or doing something, and they uncovered this room, and they went in there, and on the wall was scratched a piece of graffiti. And, and it's kind of hard to date, but it's estimated to have been made around uh, 200... 
A.D. It is the earliest depiction of Jesus Christ that we know of. Scratched on a wall. It's the earliest depiction of Jesus Christ. That's what it looks like. That's a tracing. In other words, somebody put a piece of paper on the wall and and traced over it. That's what it looks like. You'll see there a man on a cross. You'll see a boy with his hand raised in worship. And you see an inscription. Look at his head. You see what his head is? It's a donkey. It's a donkey. The image shows a young man worshiping a crucified figure with a donkey head. The inscription says, Alex Zamenos worships his God. That's what they thought of Jesus. A donkey. And I won't use the other word. I thought about it, but I won't. But that's, I want you to see the earliest depiction is not, oh my gosh, this is this great God who's come to die for our sins. No, they said that's the dumbest thing we've ever heard. That's something a, a, a donkey would believe in. That's, that's ridiculous. So the earliest depiction we have of Jesus Christ by human beings isn't a depiction of worship. It's a depiction of mockery. It's a depiction of, of ridicule. That's, it, it's foolish to the world. You see, the Greeks looked to philosophy and wisdom as the answer to the deepest problems of life. The idea of a man hanging on a cross to save the world was stupidity to them. That made absolutely no sense. In fact, it was so ridiculous, it was worthy of mockery and ridicule and and contempt. And by the way, if you think things have changed in 2,000 years, you got another thing coming. The, the fact is that even today, the idea of a God who comes and dies on a cross for your sins and mine, people can still not get their hands or their heads around that concept. By the way, even people who claim to be Christian. I found this quote. This is the Reverend Jeffrey John. He's dean of St. Albans Cathedral in, in, in England. This is what he said. The crucifixion of Jesus for the sins of the world is pretty repulsive as well as nonsensical. It's worse than illogical. It was insane. It makes God sound like a psychopath. If any human being behaved like this, we would say they were a monster. He says, the idea of a God who would send his son to be tortured and die on a cross for somebody else's sin, he says, that makes no sense. It's ludicrous. It's foolishness. You could have written, literally, you could take 1 Corinthians and Paul would have wrote it today. It hasn't changed. I said it, time changes, human nature never changes. People of then are just like people of today. They think the same way, they act the same way, uh, they believe the same way. I don't know how many of y'all have heard of Rob Bell. He wrote a book about uh, three or four years ago called Love Wins. He said this, What kind of God is that, that we would need to be rescued from this God? How could that God ever be good? How could that God ever be trusted? And how could that ever be good news? This is why lots of people don't want anything to do with the Christian faith. They see it as an endless list of absurdities. Rob Bell, by the way, was the pastor of one of the largest evangelical churches in the state of Michigan at that time that he wrote the book. Now, since then, he's fallen away from the faith and he's got nothing to do with it. But he said the idea that God would send his son to die in order to rescue us from God, which is exactly what the Bible says, he says, that's absurd. That makes no sense. What kind of God is that? You see, he couldn't put his head around it. And he, and he was a pastor. Okay? See, think of, or, or by the way, think about the Jews of that day. Their idea of a God was a God who destroyed Sodom 
with, with, with fire and brimstone. Uh, a God who appeared to Moses on a mountain with fire and thunder. Uh, a God who parted the Red Sea. Uh, a Messiah who dies on a cross. <laughs> what is this, a joke? That, that's, not, that, that's, that's not what we had planned. You see, they were looking for a political leader who would come and deliver them from the heel of the Roman Empire. The idea that their Messiah was going to be uh, come and die on a cross, that was foolish. That was moronic. That's something, that's something a moron would teach. Nobody, nobody with any sense would teach anything uh, like that. You see, it's difficult for us to understand today what crucifixion meant to the Jews. You see, we've taken the cross and, and we've gold-plated it and we hang it around our neck. We, we put it on the walls of our, of our houses. We hang it up as, a, uh, as, as an emblem to be admired. But that would have been unthinkable in the first century. I mean, how many of you lately have been to somebody's house and they had a picture of an electric chair hanging on the wall? If you went into somebody's house and they welcomed you in and you looked up and there's a picture of an electric chair on the wall, what would you do? This place is weird. That's exactly how it was. The cross was the electric chair of the first century. It's where they crucified the worst of the worst. Who, who in the world would hang that on their neck? What are y'all, what's, what's wrong with y'all? Who would put that on their wall? What, are y'all, what's, y'all people are weird. You see, we, we've forgotten this. But Paul wants to, wants to bring that back. You see, the Jews were scandalized by the cross. The idea that God would have his son die on a cross, the Messiah die on a cross... That was nowhere in their thinking. They could not comprehend it. You see, that's exactly why Paul says what he does in verse 23. The message of the cross is a message that's rejected by everybody. Verse 23, we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, it's a stumbling block. They can't get past it. They can't... A God that dies on a cross, it's a stumbling block. They cannot get past that. The Jews, it's foolishness. It makes no sense at all. It's not something they'll they'll even listen to. By the way, not only does the message, and and I'm getting to a point here at the end that I want you to listen to very closely. Not only does the message itself seem foolish, but the message also offends people. Okay, two things about the message. Not only does it seem moronic and stupid and idiotic and foolish, but it also offends people. Now, it offends us in three ways. And number one, first and foremost... It offends our pride. Okay? Now, I'm going to take a quick left turn here, and I want to talk about pride for just a second. Did you know that probably, and I'm going to say probably because I don't know this, but probably more than anything else in the world, God hates human pride. He hates it. Psalm, uh, Proverbs 6, 16 through 17 says, These six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination. Now, anytime you see that word abomination in the Bible, that's not good. If God abominates something or something is an abomination, that's as bad as it can get. You need to run from that thing as quick as you can. And number one on the list is pride. God absolutely hates it. Psalm 101.5, The man of haughty looks and arrogant heart I will not endure. Proverbs 16.5, Everyone who is arrogant is an abomination to the Lord. Luke 16.15, What is exalted among men is an abomination There's that word again. That's not good. He hates pride. Now, I want to ask a question. Somebody tell me, what is pride? Define it for me. 
Somebody. You better hurry because we can't move on until somebody speaks up. Ron. Okay, a sense of superiority. Somebody else, what is what is pride? Okay, Debbie says relying on yourself. That's a, that's a good definition of pride. Anybody else? Okay, thinking too, that, that same sense of superiority, thinking too highly of self. I'm going to give you a few things. Uh, both, all of those are right, by the way. Pride is boasting in yourself and not the Lord. Pride is taking credit ourselves for what God alone can do. Pride is relying on self and not on God. Pride is feeling sufficiency in our own strength and not in God's. And if none of those hit home, how about this one? Pride is the unwillingness to admit your weaknesses because you're afraid of what other people think of you. If I sat here this morning and I said, I want you to turn to the person on your right or the left, and I want you to confess the thing you're the weakest in. Just tell them. If there's something in you that says, there's no way I can do that, you got pride. If there's something in you that says, if I tell them this, they're going to think I'm the worst person in the world, you got a problem with pride. That's just the way it is. And, and by the way, i got a problem with pride because I'd have trouble doing that. I don't want people to think less of me. Anybody? I'm, that's pride, folks, and we all got it, and we all struggle with it. Now, here's the question. Why does God hate it so much? Why does God hate it so much? I, I want you to think about this a little bit different way this morning. And that is this. Would you agree with me that in order to love something deeply, there are things you probably are going to hate? For example, if you love the Seminoles then you're probably going to hate the Gators, or vice versa. Let, let me ask you a question. Do you think somebody from... Does anybody here hate East Tennessee State? Do you? No. Why? Well, first of all, who are they? Right? Never heard of them. Um, you know, it, the point is, is what, what makes you really hate something is legitimately hate something is your love for something else. The reason you hate Alabama is because they've got an opportunity every year to beat Auburn or vice versa, right? If they never played, guess what? You wouldn't hate them near as much because they, they can't take any away thing from your team. They can't hurt your team. They can't hurt what you... Everybody with me? See, what I want you to see here is, is this is true throughout life. If you really love your children deeply then you have to hate anything that will hurt them. You have to. If you really love truth, you'll hate lies and deceptions. By the way, if you don't really hate lies and deceptions, you don't really love truth. You might say you do, but you really don't. When you really love something, you have to hate that thing that hurts what you love. Okay? In fact, the only reason anybody should legitimately hate anything is because it replaces or ruins something that they love. In other words, hatred, true hatred, legitimate hatred, always has to stand in relation to love. If you hate something, it should be because you love something else. So this is just a little bit different way to think about it. So when I tell you that God hates something, I want you to understand that His hatred is an echo of His love. God hates something because He loves something else. He hates what he hates because it can ruin something 
that he loves very much. Now, the question is, what does he love so much that it makes him hate pride? Anybody that's right, he loves you. He loves me. You see, he wants you and I, just like I do with my boys. I love my boys. And I want my, my boys to have an abundant life. I want my boys to be happy and content and have joy and have peace. I want them to live, I want them to have, I want them to have the most satisfying human experience possible. And I love them. And by the way, I will hate anything that tries to take that away from them. Right? You see, God wants us to have an abundant life. He wants you and I to have all those things. He wants us to have the most complete human experience possible. But in order to do that, you and I have to do what we were made to do. We have to act in a way that we were created to act. You see, guys, we were made to boast in God. We were made to give Him credit. We were made to rely on His power, to magnify His glory, to lean on His strength. Our relation with Him and to Him is a source of all ultimate joy and satisfaction in life. Apart from God, everything is just vapor. It's just pretend. It's just fog. It's just an imitation. True joy, true peace, true contentment, true satisfaction is found one place and one place only, and that's in our relation to Jesus Christ and God the Father. Right? You see, that's why God hates pride. Because pride kills our capacity to rely on Him. You see, and in doing so, when it kills our capacity to rely on Him, in effect, it kills our capacity for joy and peace and contentment and all those things that he, He wants us to have. We go from exulting in the galaxies of God's glory to the gutter of our, of our human achievements. That's why he hates pride. Therefore, pride must die in order for us to know God and experience who we were created to be. And that is exactly what the cross does. The cross is where pride goes to die. See, Jesus said this, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross. And the cross is where your pride dies. It's where self dies. And you come and follow me. You can't follow me with your pride, he says. You got It has to come here to die. Why does, the, why does pride come to the cross to die? Because the cross judges the world and every one of us individually by confronting us with our sin. It tells us we're not good enough, we'll never be good enough, and it calls us to repentance and it challenges us to die to self. Jesus says, if you want to follow me, deny yourself, take up your cross, kill your pride, let your pride die, and you come rely on me, put everything on me. And it's only there that you'll find the abundant life. Real quickly, a couple of ways the, other, the cross offends us. It offends our intelligence. Do you know the world, and I've, I've talked about this for years in our Sunday school class, the world doesn't recognize... When I say the world, I mean non-Christians. The world doesn't understand sin, right? The world, by the way, the world knows it has problems. Problems like, you know, drug addiction, problems like crime... The list goes on and on. It knows it has problems, but the world doesn't see it as a sin problem. It sees it as an intelligence problem. In other words, it, the world's answer to everything is education. If we'll just educate these young people, they won't use drugs. If we just educate these young women, they won't get pregnant. If we just educate these young men, they won't commit crime. We'll just educate them. 
How's that working out for us? Not good, is it? By the way, we know they're wrong. An education, by the way, is good, and it's a necessary thing. But education holds no answer to the problem of sin. Education will never change a human heart, and education will never open the door of heaven to a human being. Nothing wrong with it. It just has no answer to the problem of sin. The cross says you cannot get to God through education. You'll never be smart enough. You'll never be intelligent enough. You'll never be wise enough. You can get so smart that you think you can answer all the cosmic questions of the world, and you're like a blind man stumbling in a blind in a dark room. You got, you'll never find God that way. It's, 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 it's useless, right? See, God purposely made the way of salvation so simple that even a young child can understand it, yet so foolish that the smartest would reject it. He's an amazing God, ain't he? He's got it all figured out when you start looking at this. Third, the cross offends our values. The cross extends an equal invitation to the powerful and the weak, the king and the construction worker, the drug addict and the debutante. Everybody is invited into God's family on the same basis. There are no favorites. There's no special deals for those with money or power or position. The things that matter to the world don't matter to God whatsoever. He care less about any of that kind of stuff. And that is a shocking affront to the way the world does business. Yet, in the end, God has no other plan of salvation. It is the message of the cross, and there is no other. If people will not have Jesus you will not have salvation. There is no other name among men whereby we must be saved, Paul says. Jesus says, John 14, 6, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No man comes unto the Father except through me. I love that verse. You see, other men come to say, men like Buddha, men like Muhammad, down through the ages come and say, I tell you the truth. Jesus said what? I am the truth. They say, I'll tell you the way to get to have life, to get to eternal life. Jesus says, I am the life. They say, I'll show you the way. Jesus says, I am the way. Who says that? I always say this, C.S. Lewis said this, the idea that you can call Jesus a good man, that's ridiculous. Jesus either was and who is who he says he was, the way, the truth, and the life, God incarnate, or he was an absolute lunatic. What man walks the earth and says, I am the way to God? What man walks the earth and says, I am the truth? If a man walks in here today and says, I'm Jesus Christ, what do we all say? You're crazy. If he walks in and says, I'm God, what do we say? You're crazy. Yet Jesus says, I'm God, and the world says, oh, he's a good man. He taught good things. No, one or the other, guys. He's who he says he is or he's a lunatic. Take your pick. There's no middle ground with him. Let me go back for just a second. What does all this mean for us? Okay, we, we are saved. I'm assuming, uh, you know, people, you are coming here to this Bible study. You're wanting to know more about Christ. So I'm going to make an assumption that most of us here are, are saved. What does it mean for us, this message that the world sees as foolishness, but we understand? Let me give you a few things. First... You and I must continue to preach the cross of Christ boldly and aggressively. Romans 1.16, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also to the Greek. If someone is going to be saved, come to know God, they're going to come to know it through the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, through the power 
of the message. It may seem like foolishness. You may want to back away from that message and try to skirt it a little bit and be a, try to explain things a little better. Give them the message. That's the power, nothing else. It's not your job to convince them. It's your job to give them the message. How will they believe unless they hear? And how will they hear unless somebody tells them? So you and I have to, don't skirt it, don't water it down. Give them the, the message. It is the good news the world needs to hear. So let us go from this place. Let's go back to our workplaces. Let's go back to our classrooms. Let's go back to our homes and preach the cross. Teach the cross. If we believe in Jesus Christ at all, then we have to preach the cross because there is no other way to heaven. There's no way. Okay, Jesus himself told us that. Number two, as we preach the message of the cross, the world will reject you and they will reject your message. Don't be surprised by that. You've got this message that to you makes perfect sense. And you go to that coworker, and, and they're going through a bad time, and you think, oh, this is a perfect opportunity. I'm going to give them the message of the cross. And they look at you, and act, that is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. You know? Don't be surprised if they reject the message, and they reject you. They did it then. They'll do it now. Jesus said they hate me. What? They're going to hate you. Don't, don't, let, don't be surprised by that. It, it said it's going to happen. Third, no matter how much we're rejected, we should, we should reject any attempts to water down the gospel or to shy away from the message of the cross. Listen, Christianity is not reasonable in the way the world views reasonableness. I mentioned before, when the world comes up with a way to God... They call it a religion, and it's always based on works. Okay? Think about any other religion in the world you want to. They're all based on works. Go study Islam. You'll find the five pillars of Islam that you have to do to get to heaven. There's a reason that Jehovah's Witnesses knock on your door so they can go back to the temple and fill out their timesheets that they knocked on your door so they get credit for that. It's works, folks. Every religion is based on works. God says what? Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, It is by grace you have been saved through faith and not by works, lest any man should boast. Christianity is no works, no way, no how. It's not reasonable according to the world. However, it is the message. It is the only way. We tell the truth and let the chips fall where they may. The people of the world consider the cross foolishness. They're right. It is revolutionary and radical, and it stands apart from all the world has to offer. But it is this foolishness of God that's designed to save. It's like that hot air balloon. It may not sound very good, but if God says this is the way to do it, you better get in that hot air balloon. And He's going to take you all the way, all the way there. We may be fools in the eyes of the world, but we preach the cross Again, let's preach it anyway, because at the end of the day, there's a lot of ways to travel, a lot of roads on this in this world, but there's only one road that leads to heaven. And that's only one way, and that is the way of the cross. Now, I told you the message of God has designed a plan of salvation, right? And it, it comes to people, and two things happen. Number one, they think it's what? Foolishness. Number two, it also does what to them? It offends them. Now, we've seen that God hates human pride. 
So he deliberately, I want you to listen to me very closely because this is going to lead into next week. God deliberately sets up a way of salvation that would not allow human boasting. He said, I'm going to come up with a way for men and women to be saved, and if they take that way, there is no, there's no way they can boast. Again, look at Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anybody should boast. So he has designed a way to get to him that prohibits any human boasting. Everybody with me? Okay? Remember, he hates human pride. So he's going to get... A, if you're going to come to him, it's got nothing to do with you. It'll never be... You'll never be able to say, look what I did. You'll never be able to, to say that. It, it is a message that human beings call foolishness, a, a message that human beings instinctively mock and reject, a message that offends men and women. It is that message that God ordains as the only ways of being saved. Now, think about that. God says, I'm going to come up with a plan and I'm going to give it to human beings. And when I do, they're just instinctively going to reject it and say it sounds like a moron said it. Not only that, it's also going to offend them. If you look at it, it's almost like God set it up to make it impossible for men and women to be saved. It's almost like He set it up I mean, couldn't he have come up with a bet, you know, a way that people run to? A people, a way that people say, man, y'all hear what, what, what Paul's preaching? Let's go hear some more. No, when they heard it, they said, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. And, and not only that, it offended them. It's almost like God came up with a, a message and a plan that would make it impossible to be saved. By the way, which is exactly what he did. It's exactly what he did. Yet, people are Saved, are they not? Look at what verse 18 says. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. You see, the fact is, is that he, he come up with this plan, this message that people run from, people instinctively reject. By the way, if you want to say, well, some, aren't some people just smarter than others, and that's why they believe? I refer you back again, look at verse 21 in your scripture. For in the wisdom of God, He designed and ordained that men and women could never come to Him through their own intelligence and their own wisdom. It's not that some people are smarter than others. Okay? Let's look at 1 Corinthians 1, 22 to 24. In that same passage, Paul says this, For the Jews request a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, it's a stumbling block. They can't get past it. To the Greeks, it's foolishness. It sounds moronic. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power and the wisdom of God. What I want you to see is some of those very Greeks who heard the message and thought it was foolishness, who were seeking after wisdom, they got saved. Now, my question is, why? Why, why did... Y'all see that? In, look at verse 21. Remember, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God. He ordained it so you could never come to God through your own power of your own intelligence. But yet, some of those same Greeks who were trying to understand it through the power of their own intelligence, they got saved. Now, my question is, why? What was the difference in, in those? Think about some of those Jews who were seeking a sign... And they, they saw the cross as a stumbling block. Some of them got saved. 
Paul was one of them. Now, why did they get saved? By the way, it wasn't because they saw... Remember, what were they seeking, the Jews? A sign. And so the sign comes right in front of them, preaches to them, raises people from the dead, turns water into wine, heals the lepers, heals the withered hands, raises, by the way, raises Lazarus from the dead, and what did they want to do? Anybody know? They wanted to kill him. They seek after a sign, so God says, here's a sign. Was it a sign that made them believe? No. Do you all remember the, uh, and I was going to put all of it up there, do you remember the parable of Lazarus and the rich man in the Bible? You know, Lazarus, there's a rich man, and Lazarus is a beggar at his gate, and uh, who, the, who, who basically the dogs would lick his wombs. And Anyway, they both died. And the beggar goes to heaven, and he's, in the, he's, he's at the side of Abraham. And across the abyss, they can see the, the rich man who's in hell, and he's suffering in the flames. And he calls over to Abraham, and he says, Abraham, send Lazarus over here to dip his finger in water and just cool my tongue just for a minute. And Abraham says, can't do it. There's an abyss that's fixed between us. We can't, we can't cross over. And the, and, the, and the rich man says, Abraham, just do one thing for me. Send Lazarus back from the dead so he can go to my brothers and tell them, don't come to this place. And I want you to watch what Abraham said. He said, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't be convinced even if somebody rises from the dead. You see, if you won't listen to the truth, I've heard people say it, if I, if I could just see somebody rise from the dead, I'd believe. No, you wouldn't. You can't. You see, even the greatest sign in the world cannot turn you to the true and living God. It's impossible. See, my, so my question is, what makes the difference? Why are some people saved and not others? Paul told us in today's message or passage, he said, but to those who are called. Man, that's unbelievable. See, the fact is, there's a world of Greeks and a world of Gentiles and a world of Jews and a, and a world of Muslims, and the list goes on and on. And some of them are saved. And they're not saved because they're smarter than other people. They're not saved because they're more logical than other people. They're not saved because they saw some sign that other people didn't see. They're saved because they're called by God Himself. And that's why Paul will tell us next week, he says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, consider your calling. Consider your calling. Think about what it means that you were called by God. And that's exactly what we're going to do uh, in next week's lesson. We're going to talk, what does it mean to be called by God? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for...